Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Shachten Nguelga. Shachten Nguelga. What should we do for Shachten Nguelga? As if there's anything. Like, what could you possibly do for a language that's two or three thousand years old in a Shachten? A mere Shacht law. Seven days. Even if Shacht and Nguelga does now last for She La Yeg, actually. But I only have She or Shacht no made here, six or seven minutes, a minute for every four centuries of its existence. What I'd love to do is to give you some words, some West Kerry words from Kirkurina. You know, Kirkurina. Kirka meaning the lands or the territory of, and Rina of the clan named Rina or Divna, the relations of Dirmud o Divna, who stole the beautiful Grania from Finn McCool. Although, of course, it was she who lured him away. She didn't want to be stuck with cranky, decrepit old Fionn McCool when such a fine specimen of West Kerry manhood as Dirmud was available. Anyway. I want to share some of the words that Dermot and his people would have used eons ago and that are still being used on Lahanish Dangan i Hush, on the Dingle Peninsula today. They're from a book called Knossach Fuckel on Gaum, a gathering of words from the area by Dahi Olinhoin. Let's start off with an easy one. Inna Fider Eiter which means to know something off by heart. So Hashena Fider Eiterigum Hajar means prayer, but Ajar means nothing really. Yet together they convey the sense of off by heart. Or how about Alilu Pililu, weeping and crying? She was weeping and crying when she heard. Alilu on its own means goodness gracious, or maybe hallelujah. And Pililu means nothing, except maybe hullabaloo. But put them together and they evoke whining and whinging and moaning. Then there's Eivlogiacht, foolishness, uselessness, usually said, I'm afraid to say, about a woman by a man. It happened because of her uselessness. Now, don't be expecting to find these words in your dictionary. They're not dictionary words. These words are wild ones never been tamed or pinned down by lexographer. They're the pure drop. Alilu pililu. In a fadderadder. And then there's joroil maidena. Joroil maidena. The appearance of rain in the morning as a result of dew during the night. I'll give you that one again. Joroil maidena. The appearance of rain in the morning as a result of dew during the night. Yeah, that's how we like our words in West Kerry. Specific a little bit quirky and somewhat magical. Joyroil Majdana. Or how about Altuch Manaw? refers to a travelling wise woman who was feared because of her sorcery. Altuch Specific, a little bit quirky and somewhat magical. Get your child to put that one in a school essay and just see what happens. Or if he or she has no interest in the language, tell them bui to shella or bui to shmuga, a huge spittle or a gob of snot. They'll like that. But maybe don't get them to put that into their essay. It's the sheer specificity of the words that I love most, like 
Milchert. Milchert is a circular sore spot from walking barefoot on the sole of your foot. A milchert. It'll often have a little black spot at the centre of it. It's not quite a blister and not quite a bruise. It's a milchert. You'll see it particularly on people with balpoga. Any guess what balpoga are? Don't bother. You're, you'll never get it. Balpoga are flat feet. Will you look at his flat feet? Balpog is the singular, in case you ever need it. Balpog, flat foot. How about coxaloidum? Coxaloidum. Now we're getting there. This is the good stuff, the 100% proof. Coxaloidum means a love potion, an aphrodisiac. Tan coxaloidum again. He has what it takes. The John Travolta stare, the John Wayne swagger, the George Clooney smirk. It works for women too. Hug she on coxaloidum though. She put the come hither on him. There were specific potions and herbal mixes that could be used as a coxaloidum. A well-known one was Driabna Boyle. It was said, Now, you won't understand the first bit, but what about It means into the man's drink, into his tea, no banya, no porter. And he'll be totally besotted by her. But what is this driab nabuila that you put into the drink? Well, according to a dictionary, it means the scum of the dung heap. But as I say, we're far from the realm of dictionaries here. We're well off pieced. Driab nabuila, in the context of a coxaloidum or an aphrodisiac, is a metaphor for a woman's menses. Put a few drops of that into his drink and he'll be smitten. Maybe that's how Gráinne got Diarmuid. He was willing to commit treachery on his beloved leader, Fionn McCool, and elope with her because of the coxaloidum. That's what we need for Irish. Some form of coxaloidum to make us fall in love with her all over again. My friend Liam telephoned from Twickenham recently. They're taking your phone box down, he said. I thought you should know. And why would the removal of a phone box from a London street be of interest to me? Well, over 30 years ago, I revealed to him that every time I passed this phone box, I felt a strong urge to bless myself. Had I witnessed an apparition there, was his droll response. No, I hadn't. But I assured him that something miraculous had occurred there just the same. And I explained that when I landed in London in the early 1970s, I had drifted in and out of jobs in bars and building sites, basically rootless and heading nowhere. But I'd always harboured the ambition of becoming a teacher. A friend from home had managed it by availing of a government grant. Back then, in England, funding for full-time courses was awarded to eligible candidates. However, due to a shortfall in my tax contributions, my attempts over two years to acquire a grant had been justifiably refused. Hardly Al Capone territory, but enough to deny me just the same. 
The following year, still not meeting the conditions of the awarding authority, I tried my luck by applying again anyway. But this time, I followed up with monthly letters. And just to be on the safe side, I telephoned every week as well, frequently to the exasperated response of, Oh no, it's that Irish bloke again, will you take it? So, no luck. On my third year of trying, I decided to put the cart before the horse. I applied for and was offered a place in a college, St Mary's, Strawberry Hill. And despite having no money to pay the fees or to support myself, I enrolled on the first day of term. A phone call to the authority on my way home would decide whether or not I'd be returning the next day. So, after registration, I headed for the nearest phone box and, fumbling coins into the slot, I offered up a heartfelt prayer. A softly spoken voice on the other end of the line informed me that she had my paperwork in front of her, remarking that it was one of the thickest files she had ever come across. Well, that's hardly surprising, I snapped petulantly. I've been writing to you every month for the last three years. The voice, firmer now, informed me that she had seen grants awarded too many times to people who dropped out after only a month or two. Well, I spluttered, I think that file in front of you tells you I am not one of those. Would I be wasting everybody's time if I was going to drop out? I agree, the voice said. In my astonishment, I swayed backwards, the cast iron and glass framework of the kiosk cool against my damp shirt. I'm sorry, I said, but what did you say? I don't think you are like them, she said, looking at your correspondence, but, she added, you still fall short of the requirements necessary for a bursary. Rejected again. I nearly put the receiver down, but she continued. However, because I believe you won't drop out, I'm approving your application. I'm not giving you my name, so there's no need for any more letters or calls to this department. Do you understand? Yes, I, I do, I mumbled. Thank you. You don't know what this means to me. I think I do she said, and with a hushed, congratulations, don't let me down. There was a click, she was gone, and my life had changed forever. Respecting her wishes, I never tried to discover the identity of the stranger who went out on a limb to give a young man of little means an opportunity to better himself and maybe do some good in the world. Why did she help me? Perhaps my perseverance had paid off, and maybe that prayer did no harm either. One thing I am certain of, I said to Liam the day I explained about my phone box, is that an angel answered my call that day. And we stood looking at the kiosk, which was now transformed into something less ordinary for him too. Which is why, years later, he felt its passing had to be acknowledged. In these trying times, the opportunity to worship in the traditional way has been considerably curtailed. But you don't need to be in an elaborate edifice to commune with the Spirit. Any structure will do, even an iconic red telephone box. 
Indeed, it may be better suited than most for the purpose, for if ever there was a man who knew about places of worship, it was its designer, Sir Giles Gilbert Scott. He was also the architect responsible for the construction of many chapels, churches and cathedrals, including Liverpool's Anglican Cathedral. Is it too fanciful then to suggest that the spirit imbued in those hallowed buildings is no less present in his humble telephone box? Oh, one more thing. Did I let my anonymous benefactor down by dropping out? I did not. It wasn't until almost 40 years after that fateful call that my career in education drew to a close. In that time, it's been my privilege to have taught several generations of young people, always inspired by my faith in the transformative power of education. nice to hear your voice again I've waited all day long Even wrote a song for you It's strange the way you make me feel With just a word or two I'd like to do the same for you A March morning back in the early 80s I am on my way to school in Mishkoltz the second largest city of then-communist Hungary. There is a stretch in the days. Snowdrops, crocuses and tulips have broken through the snowy ground. Once inside the school building, I approach the classroom. Some of my classmates, just the girls, stand outside the door engaging in excited chatter. We locked out. The boys are in there. Then it hits me. It is March the 8th. International Women's Day. On this one day of the year, we girls would notice extra attention from the boys. And I don't mean the I pull your ponytail and run away before you can catch me kind of attention. We felt special. Eventually, one of the boys in the class with a proud smile on his face would open the door to let us into the classroom. Each girl's desk would be decorated with snowdrops, tied in a neat little bunch and a small bar of chocolate beside it. Same number of flowers, same brand of chocolate for each of us. Even the girls that were not extremely popular with the boys on the other days of the year would feel proud and comfortable with their female identity on this day. We didn't know that this type of celebration of girls and women was just the tail end of a once much more significant ideological programming of women's role in the communist society. The history of International Women's Day reaches back to March the 8th, 1857, when 40,000 women workers in New York went on strike to demand equal pay and a reduction of their working hours. In 1910, March the 8th, the opening day of the International Socialist Conference in Copenhagen was dedicated to national women's movements throughout the world. However, it wasn't until Soviet women walked onto the streets to demonstrate for bread and peace in 1917 that Soviet leaders started to look upon women as a force to be utilized. 
When Hungary came under Soviet rule after World War II, our landscape of national and religious holidays went through profound transformation. Some were done away with, others were elevated to a higher level of importance if they promoted the regime. Mother's Day was pushed into the background, whereas International Women's Day became compulsory to observe. The economy needed more working hands, not more mouths to feed. In post-war Hungary, there was a shortage of able-bodied men, so women played a significant role in rebuilding the country. Anyway, who would want to spend their life tending to the family hearth when they could be out plowing the fields of the cooperative from morning till evening? According to Women's Day posters from the 40s, the happiest women on earth were the muscular ones driving huge tractors in muddy fields, strong, determined and proud to contribute to their country's economic growth. Daintiness and grace were things of the past. Marilyn Monroe would have been hard done by in the communist society. And so, based on Soviet propaganda, a strange kind of emancipation started to take root in society. Now, men and women had equal rights. Well, equal rights to work in any case. Married or single, women were expected to enter the workforce. And those female factory workers, miners, construction workers or bus drivers smiling on the black and white covers of women's magazines of the time were role models. Male leaders of the regime would graciously overlook the fact that the same women would still usually be the ones to look after the household when they got home from their day job. The idea of a husband offering a helping hand with home chores didn't occur to many. There was no public discourse on the huge discrepancies between men's and women's salaries either. In the 50s and 60s, as the country was getting back on its feet, female communist role models changed. Now, teachers, nurses and office workers would smile from the covers of national newspapers and magazines on March the 8th. At workplaces, it was the responsibility of the Socialist Brigade to organize some form of celebration on the day. Speeches were given and workers' medals of excellency were awarded in praise of working women. Company gatherings were held in canteens where men would give a tulip and serve food to their female colleagues on International Women's Day. And if the women were lucky, it wouldn't always be they who had to clean up after the event because the tired men had fled the scene. As communism began to phase out in the 80s, workers' medals and socialist brigade gatherings were forgotten. International Women's Day, as I remember it from my school days, was a day to honor women for their true worth. Men continued to give flowers to their female co-workers and family members, more enthusiastically than ever. Younger generations followed suit. So I think I can safely say that the snowdrops and the chocolate bars that I and other girls were given in the 80s were being offered with genuine warmth, appreciation and respect. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing Where have all the flowers gone? Long time 
time ago Where have all the flowers gone Young girls pick them everyone Ishka Koshkraha Hame Malaba Idolachola Ishdig Sadorchadus Smuinti on Lay Egshir Rohalu Machyan Kloshima came Er Harsha Chandorish Augustagan Shishtach Shulan Shitrasna Hom Eatrum Marankior Savale Mohim Amera Erma Aig Antishka Koshkraha Achur Erme Eden Gyaran si kora na krisha er flana ma krakin lena hordog. Ihawa, adar si, agas rihin an tishka siyas in ar rohlaan, ko fadalema vali, fuur mar ayr, uur mar ghrogt madna, godiga ditme machola. Agas mea mali er malaba is kainla ma gragin si eishin gachi iha gantep. Ihawa, adar si. Na jora biogashin a lega ke ermeadan, mar chiddin sharmanish tailig a klakshi gachihe. Hershian ruig er mavuri er fad, agasterhing ihwa erashle soliditing im a holla. An will mark fahe eganishkishin ermeadan anish and granta. Holy water. I'm in my bed falling asleep in the dark. Thoughts of the day are swirling around in my head. I hear her step on the threshold and she comes in. She walks across to me quietly, like a ballet dancer. I feel her fingers on my face, putting the holy water on my forehead. Using her thumb, she puts the mark of the cross on my brow. Iowa, she says, good night. And the water trickles down in a stream onto my eyebrows, cold like ice, fresh like dew until I fall asleep. As I lay here in my bed, I remember how she did that every night without fail. Ihawa, she used to say, putting the little drops on my forehead as part of the familial ritual that she followed every night. All my worries used to vanish, and I used to say, Ihawa, back to her, good night, before I fell asleep. Is the mark of that holy water on my forehead now engraved there? Kalu above the beach at Kilmacrihi, 10 curlews become 11 curlews. In a small flock of wing and glide that I follow after like a younger child. Birds possessed of little more than sky. A sky so blue it turns the waves aquamarine and lights the wet sand cobalt blue. Liscana Bay become so sheltering that I am almost fooled to forget how the curlews are fading now. The wings that fly around my head trace a fragile cusp of life. The wick of their species is burning low. 
So in the way that others sit at the bedsides of the dying, I accompany the curlews out to where their blue sands will surely end. But each soft step sinks me deeper into our Earth's embrace. And when the curlews call their song in chants, lifting me with them until I am airborne, feathered, flying. I first visited Kiev in September 1985. I was one of the small Irish embassy team in Moscow when a visiting minister from Dublin arrived on an official visit. Since 1982, there had been three state funerals for Soviet leaders in quick succession. Brezhnev in 1982, Andropov in 1984 and Chernenko earlier in 1985. Western politicians were tired of visiting Moscow for state-choreographed Soviet funerals. Our visitor wanted something different. Could we conjure up an excursion away from Moscow? A visit that might lift the external Potemkin facade of the Soviet Empire. We ended up on the overnight train to Kiev, capital of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, one of the 15 constituent republics of the Soviet Union. Back then... Kiev had few Western visitors. Under the dour authoritarian Vladimir Sherbisky, the local Communist Party strongman, Ukraine's economy had deteriorated, agricultural production had suffered, and widespread political repression was accompanied by an assault on Ukrainian culture. In those days, Kiev, the third largest city in the Soviet Union, was a tired, faded, provincial backwater. The local Communist Party apparatus had some nominal independence, but in reality it was firmly in Moscow's grip. Our visiting minister and his accompanying officials, on their first visit behind the Iron Curtain, envisaged a convivial, sociable adventure, with a nice meal in the dining car, a few drinks and a good night's sleep in soft-class bunks before arrival in an exotic destination. I did my best to acquaint them with the bleak reality of long-distance train travel in the Soviet Union. Mikhail Gorbachev had come to power a few months previously, and his policy of perestroika included a strictly enforced anti-alcohol campaign. I managed to source some vodka, but our status as official visitors under the watchful eye of an ideologically pure foreign ministry guide severely hampered our efforts at conviviality. There was no dining car. I had brought six large bars of Cadbury's fruit and nut chocolate, one for everyone in the audience and to spare. I decanted the vodka into a large Coca-Cola bottle. We sat, knee to knee, in our visiting minister's compartment as the train rattled southwards, munching chocolate, sipping illegal vodka and listening to our guide discuss the subtle intricacies of Marxism-Leninism. Our visit to Kiev wasn't a great success. 
We had endless meetings with Russian-speaking apparatchiks whose titles I have long forgotten. Their collective theme was the importance of the Ukrainian SSSR in the onward march of the Soviet Union. We visited the massive Motherland Monument commemorating Ukraine's role in the Great Patriotic War. We took a cruise on the Dnieper, Ukraine's largest river that bisects the city. We failed, though, to visit any of the city's many churches, including Kiev's most iconic attraction, the 11th-century monastic complex Perchurkslava, with its golden dome churches, bell towers and caves. Back then, Ukrainian religious sites were not on the agenda. As our guide explained, these sites were under Ramont. Those of us living in the Soviet Union were familiar with the Russian word Ramont, meaning repair or maintenance, a convenient label to deflect inquisitive Western visitors. Sixteen years later, in 2001, I returned to a different Kiev. The Soviet Union had disintegrated. In a referendum in December 1991, with an overwhelming majority of 92%, Ukrainians voted for independence. Kiev had been transformed into a bustling, exuberant, vibrant capital city of three million people, energised with a palpable sense of freedom. Domestic politics were turbulent, confusing to outsiders, but a passionate, argumentative dialogue was now underway between those who, after decades of silence, had found their voices. The Foreign Ministry lobbied enthusiastically and optimistically for Ukraine's key foreign policy objective, membership of the European Union. Official visitors from member states responded with cautious ambivalence, but in those heady days no one doubted but that one day, soon, the litmus test of European identity would be achieved. The biggest discovery was O'Brien's pub, a short walk up the hill from Maidan Square, the first Irish pub in Ukraine, thronged to the doors with younger generation Ukrainians and a scattering of adventurous Irish exploring the possibilities of this new, resurrected land. My relationship with Kiev has been a voyage of discovery, from bad times to good, from winter to spring, like a well-worn, comfortable coat that's been to the tailors. For me, it's an old friend whose past is part of who Ukrainians are, whose future is my future, whose well-being and survival is more than just a passing concern, but a vital, pressing priority for me, for all of us. scent of the rose is a path to the moon. The full moon is a butterfly's wing. Anam Kurut Rosh Shli Nagali Shkihan Felakon
on Yalok Lawn. On this morning's programme, we heard Wild Words from the Dingle Peninsula by Mancon McGann. Granted, one phone call was by Peter Trant. Snowdrops and Chocolates was by Bernadette Buda. Ishka Kush Krita, Holy Water, a poem in Irish and English by Catherine Foley. And then Curlew, a poem by Grace Wells. Kiev was by Joe Hayes. And Soul Anam, a poem in Irish and English by Vincent Woods. The music was The Frenzy Polka by Cormac Begley. Bless the Telephone by Labby Seif. Where Have All the Flowers Gone by Pete Seeger, sung by Marlena Dietrich. Nocturne Number no. 12 in G by John Field was played by Veronica McSweeney. Flute Flight by Judith Hall. And In the Grove by the Danube, sung by the Vitor Ukrainian Folk Choir. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Michelle Gibson and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And for more on this and other RTE arts and culture programmes, have a look at rte.ie slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to rte.ie slash radio one slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.